Alright, as you're having a seat, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This morning we're going to study a passage in Ephesians that is uh, not well received uh, in this world. Uh, and I want, to, I want to illustrate that for you. I've got a little clip for you, video clip for you from uh, the West Wing. It was a perfectly lovely homily on Ephesians 5.21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, she's skipping over the part that says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. I do skip over that part. Why? Because it's stupid. Okay. <laughs> All right, so there you go. I just skip over that part because uh, it's stupid, right? Uh, stupid at best, oppressive at worst. And, uh, you know, I would, I would just argue that I think this passage is mostly rejected because it's misunderstood and misapplied. So my goal for us this morning is simple. I want us to understand it correctly and then to apply it to our lives. And I would argue this. I think one of the reasons that it is misunderstood is that people begin reading in chapter 5, verse 22, rather than in chapter 5, verse 21. And so that's where we're going to start this morning. I want you to read with me Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. It says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, you know, it's chapter 5, verse 21, is in a sense a summation or a synthesis of what Paul has just spoken about, which is healthy relationships within the body of Christ. You want to have a, a really strong, healthy church Well, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then that verse serves as a transition or a bridge into the entire next section. How does this apply to husbands and wives? Well, wives, you're going to subject yourselves or submit yourselves to your husbands in this way. And husbands, you're going to submit yourself to your wives in this way. In other words, you each are going to have a different calling to honor Jesus Christ in your marriage. But what it is, is mutual submission. To submit means that, in a sense, I give in. I'm willing to surrender and sacrifice not only my desires, but sometimes even what I consider to be my needs or my rights for the good of others. And Paul says, this is the imperative for all relationships in the church. So if you're here this morning and, and you're single or you are divorced or you are widowed, there is application for you in all of your relationships within the body of Christ. You want to have healthy relationships? Well, you surrender your rights. You, you give in, you defer, you pursue the best of the other person. That's the same message as in Philippians chapter 2, where we're called to live as Christ lived, who, who even though he was equal with God, surrendered and sacrificed for our good. So Paul says there, don't consider yourselves higher than others. Instead, put others above yourself. Now, what Paul is doing in chapter 5, verse 22 and on, is he's taking that principle and applying it specifically to marriage. So what does it look like for a husband to honor Jesus Christ or revere Jesus Christ in his marriage? Well, he's going to do that one way, and a wife is going to honor Jesus Christ or revere Jesus Christ in another way, but what it represents is a mutual submission in honor of Jesus Christ. Okay, So, let's begin with the wife. Chapter 5, verse 21. All of you be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, if husbands and wives are both, in a sense, to be 
subject to one another or submit to one another. What's the special sense in, the, in which the wife does it to her husband? Chapter 5, verse 33, he says, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The wife shows honor or reverence to Jesus Christ by submitting to her husband. And the way that she submits to her husband is she shows him respect, Paul says, as the head of the home. So what does Paul mean by the husband being the head of the home? Well, he uses an analogy here. He makes a comparison. He says the husband is the head of the home as Christ is the head of the church. What sense in which Christ is the head of the church? Well, two things. First is that he has authority over the church, but also he takes responsibility for the church. Jesus takes responsibility for us to become a beautiful bride. That is to become all that God has designed us to be and destined us to be. Paul says the husband has that same responsibility to point his family in a direction that everything that they do brings honor and glory in Jesus Christ and he will be held accountable for that. And the wife is to respect his responsibility in that role. Now, not everybody who is a, a Bible-believing Christian agrees with what I just said to you. Right? I, I, I freely acknowledge that there are many godly people and there are great churches and there are incredible biblical scholars who don't agree. They say what's happening in Ephesians chapter 5 is really applicable just to first century or maybe just a little bit later. In other words, Paul is writing to this patriarchal culture in which the women were not educated and they were not empowered, and so he's just accommodating to the culture, and he's saying, this applies to you and your marriages within this culture. Right? That position is known as uh, egalitarianism, right? Because theologians need really long words to validate our opinions on things. So egalitarian, meaning there are no role distinctions within marriage. Now that we live in this modern age and women are educated and they are empowered, there are no role distinctions. Now, that's not the position I hold. I hold a position with a longer name. Consequently, right, it's got to be better. Complementarianism, which means that men and women are made very different, but they're designed to be complementary. There are role distinctions within marriage, but those roles are designed to complement one another. And what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, I would argue, is timeless. It's for every culture and every age and every people because it's rooted in creation. Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God created Adam first. And that's significant. He didn't create Eve first. He created Adam first because Adam would be the head of his home. But he didn't have a home yet. So God had him naming animals and all the animals came through and he's giving them names and it's really laborious, and he's getting fatigued, and he's realizing, there's no one here like me. And God even looks at this, and he says, you know, everything's good out here, but that's really not good at all. So he put out, puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib from his side, and he fashions one who is corresponding to him or complementary to him, and he brings her to Adam, and now Adam is responsible to give her a name. Right? He named all of the animals, and now he is responsible to name his wife. He is, is given authority over his new home or this one flesh, one new family. And Adam is responsible. And we see that responsibility worked out even in the fall. Right? In the fall, who sinned first? Well, we could argue that, that Eve did. Right? She's the one who took the fruit first and she ate, even though she was not supposed to eat. And then she gave it to Adam and Adam ate. And in that moment, they realized their failure and their sin. They're alienated from one another. They're alienated from God. And when God, in a sense, discovers that, he comes into the garden and they're hiding from him. Who does he go to first? He goes to Adam. Because he has told Adam, you're responsible. 
And now that we are each born separated from God, the Apostle Paul tells us the reason is not because of Eve's failure, but because of Adam's failure. Because I made Adam responsible, and because Adam fell, all of you are going to experience it. Because he is head of the family, he was head of humanity. And so what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 5 is not just post-fall, it is pre-fall, it is the way God designed the family to operate. Now, let me just say this. This is not a matter to uh, break fellowship with somebody over, right? Again, there are really godly people who hold an egalitarian position and those who hold a complementary position. Uh, this is, it doesn't rise to the level of you know, deity of Christ or Trinity or salvation by grace through faith alone. I just want you to know, as I approach this passage, this is, this is my conviction and where I come from and how I'm teaching it. And, and I, I, I say that because I, I think that often the position is rejected because there's so much misunderstanding about what it means. So where I want to start is this. What is godly submission or godly biblical uh, respect for a wife to have toward her husband look like? I'm going to start with what it doesn't mean. Okay? It doesn't mean that men are godlier than women, which you've all observed, right? That's not, that's not what it means at all. In fact, when God says, let us make man in our image, he means mankind. Let us make mankind in our image. And so God made mankind in his image, male and female, he created them. In other words, when Adam is living and laboring alone in the garden, the fullness of the image of God is not reflected on earth because it can't be reflected on earth just through male. It's got to be reflected through the complementary relationships of men and women. And so each are equally in the image of God. In the New Testament, Peter will say, Husbands, grant your wife honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Why? Because otherwise I'm not going to listen to your prayers. That's how seriously God takes it, right? You are co-heirs of the grace of life. You are equally in the image of God. Equally then able to have relationship with God. Equally able to reflect the character of God. Equally able ultimately to radiate the beauty of God and represent him on the earth, right? That is irrespective of gender. Submission and respect does not mean that men are better leaders than women. This is not an issue of, of skill in leadership. It's an issue of calling and role. And so even Jesus would submit himself to his father. Why? Because he was in any way inferior to his father? Absolutely not. But he had a different calling and a different role in the execution of the plan to redeem humanity that the Godhead determined. So it's not an issue of skill or particularly even skill in leadership. Submission respect does not mean that all women should submit to all men, right? We're talking about the family. We're not talking about uh, business or education or uh, any, any other field. We're, we're not talking about the boardroom or your HOA meeting. Right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about family. Right? This is about the family. This is, this is wives be subject to your own husbands, not all women sub- be submissive to all men. Fourth, submission respect does not mean that women should have dull personalities. I, I bring this up just because um, for many years, my wife really wrestled with this issue. Because if, because if you know my wife, I mean, she's not dull at all. Like she's super dynamic, right? And she read that passage in First Peter. It says, um, you know, that women should have this gentle and quiet spirit. And she goes, I'm not, I'm not gentle and quiet. You know, am I, am I not godly? I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not the issue. That, that, that's speaking to the, the quietness of your heart. 
before the Lord. Ladies, I love it that you have dynamic and vibrant personalities. That's a gift from the Lord for you to express. Look at the woman in Proverbs 31. Man, that lady gets stuff done. I'm like, I, I would love to have her on our staff team, right? She is, she's going after it. She's doing stuff. And it's a wonderful gift. You look at uh, Jesus in his ministry. He surrounded himself with, with strong women and with strong personalities. Paul had the same. It, it's not an issue of personality. God is not saying, tone it down, ladies. Right? That's not what's going on here. Submission respect does not mean that women should always obey their husbands. Women, you have a higher authority in your life, and that is God. Men, you have a higher authority in your life than any governing authority you may submit to, and that is God. So in the marriage, if your husband commands you, asks you, encourages you to do something that's clearly illegal or immoral or unethical, you should say no. You should say no. Students, if you have a teacher that tells you you should do something immoral or illegal or unethical, you should say no. Why? Because you answer to a higher authority than that teacher or instructor. If an elder comes to me and says, Brian, I want you to do something that's illegal or unethical or immoral, I should say no. Am I in submission to the elders? Yes, But my elders should be in submission to God. The highest authority is God, and we must all submit to him. Remember when Peter and John were out preaching and the governing authorities said, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, you know, we would love to obey you because God has established human government and we're in submission to human government, but you just usurped God's authority. God said, preach, so we'll preach and we'll disobey you. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of wives who uh, did this well and didn't do this well. First is from uh, Acts chapter 5. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Had a piece of property, and they decided together, you know, let's sell the property, let's give part of it to the church, but let's tell the church that we're giving all of it to the church. Great idea. So Ananias comes in, he lays the the, uh, money before the Lord, and everybody's going, wow, you're so generous, you're so awesome. But then the Spirit kind of whispers in Peter's ear, and he says, is that the full amount? And Ananias says, that's the full amount. He says, Ananias, that was a really bad decision. Because, you know, it's your property. You didn't have to give it. You could have even given a portion of it. That's not, that's not the issue. But you just lied to God. And he died. So then his wife came in. Sapphira comes in later, and she doesn't see the marks in the dirt where they drug his heels out, right? And Peter says, is this the amount that you sold the land for? Ah, you know, in that moment, she should have said no. She should have broken with her husband. Said, no, that's a lie. And I need to tell the truth to you and to God. But she didn't. She lied too. And she died. I mean, it's a harsh passage. But she had a higher accountability, and that was to the Lord, not to her husband in that moment. Now, there's another story, better story, and that is Abigail. Remember Abigail in the Old Testament? She was married to a guy whose name was uh, Nabal, and his name means fool. So grasp that, right? He's born and his parents look at him and they go, this is not going to be good, right? (laughs) It's inevitable. Fool. Here, fool, are you hungry? Come on in from playing. I mean, fool. They named their child fool. That's unbelievable, right? And uh, he made a decision not to feed David and David's men who had protected his flocks 
And David was furious, and he was going to come, and he was going to wipe out the family. It was a terrible decision. It was going to destroy the family. And so Abigail intervenes. She goes against the wishes of her husband. She comes to David, and she goes, David, my husband, you know his name. <laughs> it's a fool. Arrange marriages. I, I just, I'm, I'm stuck here. And here's food. Please, we're, we're, I'm really genuinely grateful. Genuinely grateful, right? She went against the wishes of her husband, and consequently, she rescued the family. That was a good decision. And the moral of the story is, don't name your daughter Sapphira, name them Abigail, right? Submission respect does not mean that women should always obey. So what does it mean? A couple of thoughts for you. The first is this. Submission and respect is entirely voluntary. No one can make you submit. Someone can subjugate you, but they can't make you submit because submission is a free choice. Submission comes from the heart. That's why Paul doesn't say, husbands, make your wives submit. And husbands, if you're in an argument with your wife and you say, you should do what I'm telling you to do because God called you to submit, you have already lost the argument. It is, it's a free and voluntary choice. Now, that being said, submission respect then displays the character and the work of Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the very form and nature of God, chose voluntarily to submit his will to the will of the Father. Sweating drops of blood, he got on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he said, this is what I desire, yet not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. It was, it was a voluntary choice. And I would argue it was the voluntary choice of a man who was strong, not weak. The Jews didn't take his life from him. The Romans didn't take his life from him. Even his father didn't take his life from him. He chose to give his life. He said this, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And I take it up again because this is the command I received from my father. That is, the father made this command and I said yes. I chose. Right? So, ladies, when you choose to submit your will to the will of your husband, you choose to respect his responsibility to lead your home toward Jesus, even when he's not doing it perfectly, you are displaying the character of Christ. You're displaying the strength of Christ. One of my other favorite stories, I've I've said this many times, but I love the story in the gospel of Jesus washing the disciples' feet just because it's so incredibly awkward. And I, and I imagine just being in that moment, right, with the disciples. And, you know, I rush in, and I don't think about anybody else. i just trying to get a, the best seat at the table. And I don't, I don't even think about washing the master's feet, although I should. And I don't worry that nobody else washed my feet, because I don't really like these guys anyway. But I get my food. I'm eating my meal. I'm all the way full. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets up, and then he starts washing all of our feet. And it takes a while, and it's really, really uncomfortable. I just love the discomfort of that moment. I think, wow, how, how incredible would that have been in that moment? The creator of the universe is scrubbing the dirt out from between the toes of 12 selfish men. Wow. But John's commentary is, is what I love. It's so instructive at the beginning. It says, Jesus, having come forth from the Father... And knowing that he was going back to the Father, and that the Father had given all creation into his hands to govern and rule, got up from the meal, put on a towel, robe of a servant, got a basin of water, got down on his hands and knees, and just started scrubbing toes. 
I think he was actually really enjoying that moment. Washing the disciples' feet. Why? Because he knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew that he was going to govern all things. It was security, right? He knew who he was. And he knew no one was going to take his life. He knew he was going to set his face toward Jerusalem and resolutely go there, even though he was going to suffer immensely and be crucified. (laughs) And that is what you display, wives, what all of us display when we're willing to submit ourselves to others. When we're willing to say, no to our own desires, our own needs, even in our own rights, whether it's to a husband or to a friend or to a roommate or another family member, it radiates Jesus. Right? And that's really the point of biblical submission. Now, wives, practically speaking, how do you do this well? Let me, let me give you uh, three ideas for how you honor Jesus Christ by respecting your husband's headship in your home. Okay, so three thoughts. First is this, pray for him. As opposed to nag him. Okay, pray for him. Are there things that you want changed in your husband's life? It's okay for you to nod, even if he's sitting next to you. Because, yes, yes, there are. Yeah, vigorously. Yeah, I do. Okay, how do you think those can best be accomplished? If you nag him, he's probably heard it before, right? Or if you pray for him. Prayer requires faith. That you're going to trust God to work in your husband's life rather than tell him all the things that he needs to change. And I want to challenge you. Take a risk and and pull back from the criticism and step into prayer. Uh, My wife prays for me. And she doesn't pray like this. You know, um, Brian, I I prayed for you today that you'd uh, stop being such a jerk. She says, "That's, that's not, but I know she prays for me. But what she prays is God's best in, in my life. And it is incredibly reassuring to know that there's somebody pleading before the throne of grace for me to, to grow and to change. And so I want to encourage you ladies, do this first, pray. Second, create space for him to lead. You lead your home, ladies. You competently manage what you have here. You also want your husband to engage in your home. Well, you have to create space for that because when he steps into that space, he's probably not going to do it exactly like uh, you would do it. There's, there's a book I'm going to recommend to you guys shortly. So if you don't write this down, you can get it later. It's called Love and Respect. And in the book, one of the uh, wives says this. She says, I want my husband to be the head. I want him to be the leader. I just want to make sure he makes decisions in keeping with what I want. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, not making, that's not making space. I went... Um, uh, on vacation with some friends of mine. Uh, this is years ago, and they were married and I was single, right? So they allowed me, a single guy, to just jump in on their vacations. And it was really fun. It was wonderful. Uh, but we were, we were driving around. We were um, putting in a lot of miles in the car. So we're in a tight place uh, going around the country, and uh, they were driving me crazy. And so I told them, You're driving me crazy. Because they, were, they just kept they just fighting, right? It seemed like it was the same argument, same fight constantly, because she wanted her husband to lead. And he's a pretty laid-back guy. I mean, just really, he can just kind of go with whatever flow, but she wanted him to lead. So the conversations would go like this. I want you to lead. And he said, oh, okay. Well, I think we should go this way. And she would say, really? Because <laughs> I, I think we should go this way, and this might be better. And here's a couple really more valid options. And, and he would say, okay, whatever. And she'd go... You never lead. And he would say, 
you never follow, right? And so I'm like, ah, I finally just erupted, which, you know, it's kind of ironic because I'm a single guy, but I'm like, you guys are just crazy. You're driving me crazy. Could it be that the journey we're on is actually more important than the destination, right? Because at the end of the day, we're going to get there. And, and maybe it takes longer because we stop here and we hit a dead end or this path takes us out of the way. But, but we enjoy the journey together. And you enjoy the journey together. Consequently, I enjoy the journey together with you. Make space. And, you know, 30 years later, they still say to me, thank you for that conversation. I'm like, whatever. I just know you were bugging me, right? I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I'm glad that that worked. Make space. Right? You, want it to, you want him to engage, you've got to make space for that. Third, encourage his efforts. Okay, think A for effort. Genesis chapter 2, we're told by God that the wife is going to be a helper that is Azer. And that's not a derogatory term. In fact, often the helper is one who's stronger helping the weaker. God is the Azer or the helper of Israel. He comes and supports and lifts up and strengthens. And wives, God has made you to help your husband become all that God designed him to be. And you have, you have a power in his life that no one else has. And particularly in the words that you speak. Right? To encourage means to uh, place uh, something into the heart. And in your words can do that. Your words can, can build him up or tear him down like no one else. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. All right, you can speak life into him or not. Now, my wife is uh, very encouraging. That's one of her spiritual gifts. And, man, I just I feast on that. I love it. And the funny thing is, before we got married, I didn't know that I needed encouragement because I'm kind of a self-starter. I'm good to go. But now that I'm getting it, I'm like, wow. I, I wish everybody had this. This is really great. And she encourages me, I mean, literally every day. And one of the things she does for me is she just says, thanks. She will say to me almost daily, she'll say something like, you know, thank you for providing for us. Thank you for working hard. Thank you for uh, the home that we have to live in. Thank you that we always have food on the table. Thank you that, that um, you have cars that run for us. And thank you that you pay our bills. And thank you that you engage with our kids. And th- I mean, she just says, thanks. And then I think to myself, you're welcome. Anything I can do for you? I mean, I'm just like, oh, I, it's, I appreciate that so deeply because she's constantly encouraging. And she values the fact that I, that I do engage with the kids. Right? She wants me. She makes space for me. Remember when our kids were little, uh, I, I did lots of bath time. I love doing bath time. But I didn't do bath time exactly like my wife did bath time. I did bath time kind of rowdy, right? Because, the, you know, the ocean waves would come because the storm's going. And, you know, pretty soon we're, it's bath time's over because there's no water left in the bath. You know, I mean, I, we, I created work. There's work to be done now after bath time. But, man, we had fun. And, you know, and then we'd dry off and get them ready for bed. And she'd start putting them down. And she's got them all calmed down. And then I would come in. And I'm like, oh, yeah, let's, you know, let's tickle and let's wrestle and let's fight. And then I would leave. And she'd be like, I love it that you engaged with our kids. Could you do it a little quieter? Could you, you know? <laughs> but she values that. Wives, you, right now, maybe you, you look at your husband and you go, ah, there's just so many things that I really want to change. I want to exhort you, just find a few things to praise. 
And just test God in this. If your words of praise and prayer for him don't help him change and become what God has designed him to be. Okay? Those are just a few ideas, lady. now, ladies, now let's turn to uh, husbands. Husbands, in chapter 5, verse 25, Paul shifts and he says, Now, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And the first thing I want you to notice there is that he spends a lot more time on husbands than he does on wives. Why? Because we need more instruction? Probably. Probably there's seven verses as opposed to three verses. You've got about 40 words for the women and about 115 words for the men. I think it's actually something more significant, and it's this. In the culture of the day, wives submit to your husbands, respect their headship of the home, was not radical. In the culture of the day, people would have said, well, yeah, sure. Because it was a, this heavily patriarchal culture, and so the wife and the children all existed to meet the needs and desires of the husband. He's the boss. He runs the show. That's just how things work. And so it wasn't really a radical command. But now Paul says, actually, I, I, want, you to, I want you to understand that it is the husband's job or calling or responsibility to serve the interests of Jesus Christ through the family. So the husband is actually not boss, but servant. That's the sense in which he exercises his headship. That is, for the interests of Christ, pointing the entire family to Christ, and doing what is best for wife and children, irrespective of what he may feel is best for himself. So he had to spend a little bit more time on that because that was a really radical statement. That headship doesn't mean that you just rule from above. Instead, what headship means is that you follow the example of Christ. Wives, you follow the example of Christ in submitting to the will of the Father. Husbands, you follow the example of Christ by loving your wife as Christ loved the church. So what does that mean? What does Christ-like love look like? I'm going to give you a few qualities. First is this. Christ-like love initiates and pursues. There is a, a modern Jewish fable that goes like this. A little boy came home from school one day, and he was all excited. He said, Mom, Mom, Mom. They assigned roles in the school play today. And his mom's excited with him. She said, that's wonderful. What role did you get? He said, I got the best role. I got the role of the papa. And his mom is furious. And she says, you go back immediately and tell your teacher that you want a speaking role. Okay? Because the father is passive. We see this everywhere represented in our culture, don't we? Generation ago, it was the newspaper comes up. Now it's uh, ESPN or watching videos or on the phone or on the golf course. Where is dad? Dad, he, if he's physically present, he isn't emotionally present. He is not engaged. That, I would argue, is probably the first failure of Adam. He was passive in the garden. The, the grammar of Genesis chapter 3 tells us very clearly that as Eve was being tempted, 
Adam was standing there with his hands in his pockets. Well, yeah, actually, he didn't have any clothes in, but he, you know what I mean. He's like, <laughs> right, completely and utterly passive as she's being tempted. He abdicated his responsibility to lead, to guard, to protect. That is the opposite of love. Love is active. Love pursues one of the best definitions of, of agape, which is the, one of the key words in Ephesians. Agape means to choose to act to bless others, right? To initiate, to pursue, to act on behalf of the good of others. That's agape love. So, how did Jesus love us? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're completely broken. We're alienated from God. We can't get up off the ground. And God says, come, let me rescue you. He initiates. He chases after us. This is the way that God loves. That's what Christ-like love means for a husband. You initiate, you chase, you pursue. Second characteristic. Christ-like love sacrifices and it serves. Read verse 25 with me again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself up for her. How did he love? He gave himself up for her. Christ literally died for the church. Husbands, you won't necessarily literally die for your wife, but figuratively, every day, you should say no to what you want, even what you think you need, even the rights you think you can demand, and give yourself on behalf of your wife. In other words, to be head of the home means that you're chief servant. You're not dictator, you're not CEO, but you're the one who dies first. Right? Somebody in the home needs to die to themselves first. And, and husbands, that's you. That's what it means to be a spiritual leader. So Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Follow this example. It sacrifices and it serves. Practically speaking, uh, one of the things that this means for us husbands is that there's no job around the house that we don't do. Okay, the, when we think of... of of modern tasks that wives do this and husbands do this, that's completely cultural. Now, that's completely based upon tradition. Paul is talking about something that's much more significant, and that is if a husband sees himself as the chief servant in the home, there's nothing that he's unwilling to do. What he's trying to model is servanthood in any and every area of the family's life. So what does Christ-like love look like? It sacrifices and serves. Third, Christ-like love shoulders responsibility. Verse 26, he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's that's salvation. That's the setting apart. Jesus gave himself so that we could have life by grace through faith. We simply reach out and say, God, thank you that you gave us life in Jesus. And that's why Jesus came, right? For justification. Do we experience salvation? Well, that's part of it but also so that we could grow up into everything that God had for us. That's verse 27. So that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus loves the church and wants the church to become all that the church can be. Husbands, you are responsible for your wives and your children to set them on a path so that they can become all that God has for them. Now, can you guarantee that outcome? No but you're responsible to put your family on that path. And someday you'll stand before the Lord and give an accounting for how you led your family, how you set them on that path. Fourth characteristic. Christ-like love protects and it serves. How does Jesus love us? Absolutely, it's unchanging. 
It's unfailing in his love. There are things that we do that probably don't please the Lord on a daily basis. But he never rescinds his love. His covenant with us never changes. His commitment never changes. We rest in that security and in that safety. Husbands, that is your role, to create this environment in which your wife knows she is safe. She is secure. Your love will never be removed. It will never be rescinded. There's nothing that she can do to break that love that you have for her. You create that atmosphere, that culture for her. That's your calling. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Remember when when 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul is describing love, he says love is, you know, it's uh, faithful, love is kind, it's it's patient in all things. And he says uh, it's enduring. It endures all things. It it actually never fails. That is, love never quits. It doesn't give up. Husbands, that is your responsibility, to create that kind of atmosphere for your wife. So practically speaking, what does that mean? I'm going to give you three ideas as well. First, Oh, there it is again. Pray for your wife. Don't nag your wife. Are the things that you'd like to see changed in your wife? Don't, no, you shouldn't nod. You go like this, no. No, it's good. Yeah, of course. Can you get their best by telling her over and over and over again? Or could you actually go to the Lord and trust the Lord to work in her heart? Could you do that? I want to challenge you to do that for your spouse. Start there. Second, pursue her. Uh, how did you get your wife to um, close her eyes and marry you? <laughs> how did that happen? You chased her down, right? You just did all kinds of crazy stuff. You, you wrote poems. You'd never written a poem in your life. And you, you, know, you just wrote some little limerick. And she goes, oh, that's wonderful. Just because you wrote it to her, right? And you gave flowers. And you actually planned a date. You, you know, you didn't, it wasn't, hey, what do you want to do? Was, you had idea. You pursued. You chased. And, and she gave in. You tricked her. And, and she said, okay, yes. And I want to say, do that again. What, what happened? Would you just get lazy? Well, I, that's probably part of it. But I think also the bigger thing is that, that we start out with the wrong goal. The, ro- the, the goal is not just to win her and get her. But that God would give you this person, she'd be your person. And that you could one day have the opportunity to stand with her and present her before Jesus Christ. Holy, blameless, beyond reproach. In other words, there's a really long-term goal. And so I want to challenge you. uh, Pursue again, right? Start again. Pursue again. Uh, This week I was talking to uh, Matt and Blake about the passage. And Matt told a story. He was in the grocery and and the checkout line. The checker said to him, I can't remember how the conversation started, but the checker said to him that his girlfriend didn't want anything for Christmas. And uh, if you're married, a husband, you, hopefully, maybe you don't, but you should. You should know what that means. Um, that doesn't mean that she actually doesn't want anything. That's, that's not, it, if you think those words mean what they say, they don't at all. That's not, what she means is, um, I can't tell him what I want, because if I told him what I want, I couldn't get what I want, which is, I want him to be so closely observant of what I say and what I do and where I go, that he already knows what I want and he buys that for me. That's what I want. So I don't want anything but that. Right? So I would just say this. Don't panic. Pursue. You probably aren't going to get it right. You probably aren't. 
But that's okay if you show pursuit. Show pursuit, show engagement, show interest, show love. Show love. Dial in. What do you... What do you, what's your wife need? What does she long for? What do your kids need? What do they long for? And how can you step into their world and give those things to them? Okay? So pursue. Just don't be passive. Third, listen to her. God gave you this woman who has a completely different perspective on the world, and you need that. Leadership is not about stepping into every situation and you've already figured out the right answer and you just tell everybody what it is. Leadership is uh, it's a team sport. Family is a team sport. And you win together as a team. Husbands, you've got to listen. Right? So listen to what she needs. Listen to what she wants, what she longs for. Listen to uh, what she wants more from you or different from you. Right? Listen and learn. Husbands, here's the beautiful thing about all this. Uh, if you love your wives like this, it's going to be a lot easier for them to respect your leadership. Several years ago, I did a wedding and at the end of the wedding, this lady walked straight up to me. She made a beeline, and she said, I just want you to know that I'm an atheist. I was like, okay, well, I'd been, I just had preached a wedding sermon from Ephesians 5. I'm thinking, mm, where's this going? She goes, I'm an atheist. And when you started talking about Ephesians 5 and this whole idea of submission and respect, I thought, what the, you know, and then she just kind of lays down. I'm like, okay, okay we'll see where this conversation's going. And then she said, but then I, I actually listened. I thought, well, just let me listen. And as I listened, I thought to myself, you know, if my husband loved me like that, I would love to follow him. See, notice what Paul says here in chapter 5, verse 28. He says, husbands also ought to love their own wives as they love their own bodies. Because he who loves his own wife, he loves himself. This This is in your best interest, not just to minimize conflict but to maximize the experience that everyone has within the family, the wholeness that everyone can experience. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, let me give you some practical uh, tools. Greg and we have talked a little bit about Merge and about Re-Engage. There are actually three programs that we've got going on at the church. Merge is for seriously dating and engaged couples. Foundation is if you've been married less than three years, and then Re-Engage if you've been married three years or longer. These are, these are just great training, great environment, great relationships to uh, press forward and to go deeper in your marriage. Now, the bad thing about this is we're not starting new groups until January. And some of you, um, some of you are, are really, you're needing to get started right now on something, right? You're anxious. You want to get moving. I want to challenge you to put this on your calendar, but in the meantime... Let me give you a few more resources that you can look at right now. Right, here are uh, four books. And, and right now, I'm just going to say, don't, don't, husbands, don't tell me um, that you can't read. <laughs> don't, don't tell me you're illiterate. Because uh, you can get these on uh, audio. All right? So, <laughs> so don't even go there. Right? Uh, four ideas. Love and Respect. Great modern book, really, really wonderful book on marriage. A Lasting Promise is one I haven't read, but Blake insisted I put it on the list. So it'll probably be the next one that that, uh, I now have to read because uh, Tristy's sitting in the back. Uh, But he says it's an absolutely excellent book. Single Dating Engaged Married, if you are single. Our own Ben Stewart just wrote that, and that's a really, really good book. Uh, And then Beloved Unbeliever, if you're married to uh, a person who doesn't 
know Jesus, uh, how, do you, how do you interact with that spouse, right? And I could give you a lot more resources. A lot of stuff has been written. Good stuff is out there. I just want to encourage you to do something, and particularly husbands. Go first, right? I mean, just imagine how your wife would feel if you said, you know, honey, I think we need to, well, not read this book. Let's listen to this book, uh, and let's talk about it. Over the, over the break, let's set aside some time. Ask her. How would you feel if I suggested this? Man, pursuit. He's chasing after me again. He really wants wants to know me more. He knows there's more in me to know. Wow. Wives, maybe your husband isn't going to do that. Okay. Well, you you work on you and you in the Lord and think work work with the Lord about how you can become a better person. Spouse, better wife, better mom. Even if he's not ready to run alongside you, you can still honor and respect him and honor and respect Jesus Christ through your marriage. Uh, if if you're, you're single and you're really struggling with this and you'd like to be married again, you know, God listens to that and God, God cares about that. I, I was uh, single for a lot longer than I wanted to be. I got married a little bit later in life. And I, under, I understand that struggle and that longing. But, you know, you can, you can still... You can still grow in your relationships around you and in your relationships with Jesus as you learn to wait. And it's challenging. It's hard. As we close, I want us to to look at these last few verses and not skip over them because I think they're significant here. Verse 31, Paul says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Uh, Paul quotes here from Genesis chapter 2, and he says, you know, here's a mystery. Genesis chapter 2 was actually a foreshadowing of the church. Because marriage illustrates the church, and really the church illustrates marriage. What he means is this. In the church we have... Uh, lots of members, and they're all different, and they all bring this unique perspective, and they're all equal in the sight of Christ, and yet they complement one another. And when they learn to sacrifice and serve and give up their desires and needs and rights to one another, all these beautiful relationships are formed in the church, and the world looks in, they say, wow, I need to be part of that kind of community. I don't have that. I want that. Similarly, Husband and wife, very different perspectives, but when they come together as co-heirs of the grace of life and they complement one another, and each one uh, gives in, right? And wives, you respect and honor your husband's responsibility before the Lord. Well, that displays Jesus Christ in the way that he honored his father and gave his life for us. Husbands, as you love your wife, as Christ loved the church, well, you're displaying Jesus Christ in the way that he gave his life on behalf of the church. So both are displaying Christ as they complement one another. And people look in and they say, I want a, a marriage like that. I want a relationship like that. In other words, you shine Jesus Christ. Singles. You've got roommates and they have very different perspectives. But as you serve and you sacrifice, as you go first and you give in, you defer your desires and even your needs and your rights and you sacrifice and serve, you display Jesus Christ, which means that all of our relationships as a part of the body of Christ 
are designed with this transcendent meaning and this transcendent purpose. In other words, it's not just about who does the dishes, but about people knowing Jesus through the way that you and I love one another. That's the point of all this. And that's what we long for, for Jesus to display himself through all of our relationships. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given this gift of marriage, and I pray that we would treat it well. I pray that we would love one another within marriage in a way that brings honor and glory to your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray for those who are not in a marriage right now that you'd bring comfort to their hearts, that you'd bring trust in you and your goodness and your kindness as they wait. And I pray, Father, that they would dive deep into relationships that allow them to display Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for us that we would love and we would sacrifice and we would serve and we would forgive in a way and people would look at this church and they say, I need what they have. I want what they have. And they would be drawn to the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Right, God bless you. Have a great week loving one another. We'll see you next week.